Hey, welcome to How to Write a Novel. I'm uh, on the outskirts of Tokyo. Probably a good, like, 45 minutes outside of the center. I got this Airbnb where I'm going to, uh, next month I'm going to go to Fukuoka to hang out with my friend Brad, but then I'm going to finish up my 90-day visa back in Tokyo. And I got this Airbnb that's uh, in the middle of nowhere. It's even further than here, actually, but I, I like to be, when I can do this, I love to come check out where a place is in advance. Just try to get here, make sure I know how. It's like an $8 subway ride, like, you gotta do a lot of shit to get out here. But it's cool and I kind of like it, because, uh, I guess I've kind of, I mean, I've always liked the, uh, the more, you know, cities like Vancouver that are more integrated with nature and uh, how like Montreal has Mont Royal right in the center of downtown is awesome whereas like uh, you know Toronto and New York are just cities and whatever little park space they can scrabble out is just uh, it's not enough for me in my old age I definitely like nature better but I'm a little trapped to the centers of places because I never learned how to drive I don't have a car I don't have a license if there's not uh, public transit, I uh, can't really go there. <laughs> so, so I like finding these middle grounds. And I mean, this Tokyo area, like you can go so far on these trains, it's insane. I could even go a little further than where my Airbnb is. And already out there, it's like mountains and fucking cows and shit. But still 7-Elevens and all the mod cons and like where I am right now, I think I'm walking more or less toward a subway station, but I'm really not sure. But I'm like walking next to a nice stream. This nice little path, these trees, it's just nice. This is what I like, I like the outskirts. It's good, it feels good. That's, I guess, my traveling, uh, if I had any traveling advice, it's forget about the big things you're supposed to see and the big fucking famous landmarks, cause they fucking suck, they're never that good. Maybe if you go to like the Grand Canyon or the fucking The Rock with all the president's faces in it, whose name I can't recall right now. Maybe stuff like that. But shit that's in a city, it's not that good. None of it's that good. Oh, the Empire State Building, oh, the CN Tower. Who gives a, who gives a shit? You don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. Nobody gives a shit. See, I'd say if you're going to go through all the trouble of traveling somewhere, Try to get a little more time off work. Try to get some time during the week because everything is a shit show on the weekend. Every city, even like my little hometown is ridiculous on the weekends. Like you want to go to a place and you can't because it's packed. The weekend sucks. So try to get some time during the week and then don't go see anything. Just wander, just go see nothing. Because this rules, like I just walked past this weird little house that is just like bizarre. I just, I mean, I don't know, this is what I like. Why am I telling you how to live your life? But a midweek stroll through an outskirts neighborhood to me is more interesting. But yeah, while I'm wandering, uh, let's do a little episode of how to write a novel. Hmm, there might be more people in this neighborhood than I thought there was. I thought I'm all like, oh, I'm like basically in the forest right now. I'm all by myself. I'll just fucking talk to myself and do a podcast. But uh, people keep showing up. <laughs> might have to go find another, uh, another shrine or something. But let's give it a shot. So uh, 
So I've never been a big fan of iTunes. It's to me is weird and difficult and I don't understand it. <laughs> but you know, you got to deal with it because it's where people get podcasts. And like one of the many little weird things that it does is you can't see reviews for your podcast unless you're in the right store, you know, the right, uh, oh man, there's like a big field. I got to be going the wrong way, right? If this leads to a subway, I'll be, I'll be shocked. But like you got to be in the Canada store to see Canada reviews and the America store to see America reviews. And you know, this podcast got a few little reviews, but I was just curious. I'm like, I wonder, I wonder if there's any more. But what am I going to do? Like go through 60 individual storefronts? No. <laughs> so, but I found this little service that like checks through all the stores and uh, gives you a little report. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Let me try that. And you know, this is still uh, quite an obscure podcast. So there's really only one review out there in the wild blue yonder that's not America or Canada. But it's this dude, Ian from Thailand who wrote a real nice review. So I just wanted to say, Ian, uh, I see you, bro. I see you out there. It's like, that's cool, right? That's, uh, that's like what the host of American Ninja Warrior would always say in 2013. I see you, I see you, Ian. See, I'm down with the coolness. I'm down with the slang. It's only five years old and was uh, not cool to start with. But while I was in there struggling through the fucking unintuitive weirdness of iTunes, I couldn't help but notice the, you know, people who subscribe to your podcast also subscribed to these podcasts. And I haven't listened to podcasts about writing in quite a long time. I used to be kind of into it just to kind of do the same, the same purpose as this podcast, just somebody talking about the thing that you're doing. Like maybe that's it's probably less directly useful as far as advice and blah, blah, blah. It's more handy just to have somebody, you know, while you're on your way to the coffee shop or whatever, while you're walking around, just to hear somebody talk about writing, kind of get you in that mindset. Hopefully, you know, spark a little bit of like fuel, give you a little fuel to do some work that day. Cause that's, that's what these podcasts did for me. That's what I hope this podcast can do for somebody else. I guess I kind of moved to YouTube more of like the, uh, there's a little, a little throng of writer YouTube people. But I really felt myself more and more at odds with these YouTube writers. And I couldn't figure out why at first. And I eventually pieced together that it's because they're writing basically romance, you know, which I'm sure I've said this before, but my little anecdote about that is I applied for a job at uh, one of the huge bookstore chains in Canada once. And I didn't get the job, but I did in the little pre-orienteering, they basically said like, hey, here's the romance section and you need to become very acquainted with this because this is what pays the bills. This is what people are gonna come through the door to get on a consistent, predictable, reliable basis. The big name books, the big time whatevers, a uh, new Harry Potter book or whatever, even that now is over. I don't know what has replaced Harry Potter, if anything. But those are few and far between, and those are not what keep the publishing industry in business. <laughs> you know, it's all romance books. And now that is still true. And additionally, you know, writing has become 
self-publishing. Like it's easy to put out your own book. It's not easy to get anyone to notice. It's not easy to get anyone to care. I went through the whole process with uh, my nonfiction book that I wrote. I wrote this book about the video game, The Last of Us. And uh, just to learn how to do it, you know, I put it on Smashwords, I put it on Amazon, and I sold very few copies. I did actually sell a copy in Japan, which I always wonder about that. I'm like, I wonder who that was. But you know, just to learn how it works, just to learn how to do it. But one of the things I learned was how difficult it is to gain traction, to be visible. Didn't help, I guess, that I also put my book out for free because I didn't really care if anybody paid for it. I just wanted to go through the process. I just wanted to learn about this stuff. And one of the things I learned is all of the big sellers, all of the consistent series, you know, it can be a historical book, it can be a sci-fi book, it can be any kind of book, a horror book, but it has to be slash romance, <laughs> you know? That's what makes the fucking world go round. So I really kind of fell off with the YouTube writer advice people because it is, it's all just... It's a different kind of book, you know? They're trying to write books that are, <clears throat> you know, that fit with the grind, that will come out consistently, that'll hit a certain level of quality, that will be compelling in a way that if it's a series, a person will buy the next book in the series, or will remember your name and will hopefully sign up to a mailing list or something and will give a shit when your next book comes out. And I just realized that kind of isn't for me. That's just not what I'm trying to do. For better or for worse, I want to write an all-time classic, which even that, the more you think about it, the more ridiculous it is, because the lifespan on an all-time classic is still very short, <laughs> you know? We still remember Treasure Island for now, but how much, how long will we really, you know? If you're insanely lucky, then you become the fucking Iliad or the Odyssey or some Shakespeare shit. And none of that stuff's even good. It didn't really survive the test of time because I don't like it. It's terrible. <laughs> so I don't know. It's a fool's errand, but that's what I'm trying to do is I want to write the big time, big punch in the face, atomic bomb, modern day classic, bam. That's what I want. I want to be Catcher in the Rye. I want to be fucking To Kill a Mockingbird. That's what I want to be. So listening to uh, this crop of writing podcasts, it's exactly the same situation. It's like all these people are just, uh, they're not on my wavelength, you know? They're just uh, talking about a different kind of book writing, a different kind of thing. Particularly the women, obviously. The men, it's a little harder to put my finger on what they're trying to do. At least it's more obvious. With women authors, it's like, well, this is the kind of book we're trying to write because this is what our demographic likes and this is what we like. With the dudes, it's less clear. I'm not totally sure if they're trying to write the same kind of disposable romance, for lack of a better term. But whatever they're trying to do, it's not... It's not... <laughs> I don't know. I just... I got nothing out of these dudes. Any guy who does a writing podcast, I don't know. I don't know what you guys are trying to accomplish. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what you're talking about. I just got nothing out of that. Where, at least with the women, like, again, it's not what I'm trying to do, but there's a lot still to be gleaned. It's a very interesting world because it's way more down-to-earth. It's way more realistic. Like, like, what the fuck am I talking about that I want to just, like, slave away for three years on one book 
and just hope that it's the greatest book that's ever been, that's really fucking dumb. That is dream world. That is nonsense. But that's where I am. That's who I am. That's the dream world I live in every day. That's the dream I'm never going to let go of. That's the dream I want. That's what I want to make real. And I don't care if it's not realistic. That's what I'm going to do. You can't take over the world by accident. You gotta be a weird, crazy person who tries to do weird, crazy shit that other people wouldn't try to do. And that's me, baby. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. But the practicality of what I'm trying to do is non-existent. I'm just a crazy person talking to other crazy people about a crazy goal that only someone who's a fucking idiot would try to do. But yeah, so it's like even though what the people who are just grinding out two, three, four romance books a year, what they're trying to do is the exact opposite of what I'm trying to do, but I, I respect it because it is way more down to earth and way more like in tune with reality of like, how do you actually be a writer who can pay a mortgage? How do you actually make this a job? And then you fall into all the stuff that I'm always railing against of like you gotta write 2,000 words a day you've gotta move 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 you just gotta like how do you get ideas how do you keep things moving you gotta move at this breakneck pace because you gotta fucking you got bills to pay you gotta make books at a fast enough rate or like or else what are you doing you know or like or else you're just like, they really approach writing as a job, as a career. Like, I always say writing isn't like laying bricks. It's not like building a house. But for them, it is. It absolutely is like laying bricks. It's like, I gotta lay X number of bricks today or this house isn't gonna be done before the winter storms come and kill us all. You know? <laughs> and I, like, I respect that. That's reality. That's the real world. So I like listening to these people talk about their process and talk about writing to a certain extent because it is so much more kind of the gun to your head model of writing where it, it makes all these things that I don't understand and that I am kind of opposed to, suddenly they make a lot more sense. Like the NaNoWriMo style of thing of like, let's just try to grind out, let's try to establish a habit of grinding out a bunch of words every day and stuff like that, like word counts each day or X number of hours spent writing each day. Or what do you do when you have writer's block? What do you do when you're stuck? How do you just get past it? How do you just move past it? What if you can't afford to stop? Then what do you do? But ultimately, my big problem is that they never talk about how do you make your book good? Like, not really good, you know? It's like, how do you make your book good so that someone will buy the next one? Sure, so that, you know, you can keep grinding away at these small-time books never once do they talk about like well what would I do if if I wanted to really double down triple down on myself and just really try to write a great book like what if I wanted to move outside of the realm of disposable romance and I really wanted to try to knock the world flat on its fucking ass with this gigantic windmill punch of a of a literary novel that never comes up and I think that's not coincidence like it's not just unrealistic it doesn't just sound like a pipe dream 
you know, they're in the trenches. They just got to keep writing. They got to keep moving. But I think it doesn't feel realistic just from the way people talk about writing when they're just a meat and potatoes writer. I don't feel like that's something they even believed that they would be capable of, you know? That's not something that... I mean, it would, it would fail, I guess. It would inevitably fail. And I mean, I think it will for me too. The chances are it's gonna fail. The chances are this is not a plan that's gonna work out. But I can know that intellectually and I can say that, but I don't feel it, <laughs> you know? I feel like, no, I'm gonna write a great book. I'm gonna do it. My whole life I've wanted to do it. This is what I'm gonna do. And I really get the sense these people don't feel that way. They just, that is not ever, it hasn't ever really been their goal, or if it has, it's been gone a long time. And uh, it's almost like the, uh, the golden noose, you know, of success. These people are successful. These people have careers. These people pay their mortgages writing. So it would be crazy to stop, you know? It's like, hey, if, if grinding out three vampire romance novels a year pays the bills, why would you not do that? Even if it's a grind and you're not getting super rich, even if a giant super mega hit book would pay more and would lead to more money and like isn't necessarily just a completely financially irresponsible plan or goal, but it's just too unrealistic, too unlikely. And maybe it's easier for me. I'm still fully in dream world, you know? I can just dream whatever dream I want to dream. <laughs> I don't have the golden noose. I don't have the golden handcuffs. I haven't had a success that's just good enough, you know? I haven't had something that's just enough to keep me going, to draw me back. So also why I can... Uh, draw these uh, generalizations. It's not like I listen to fucking 50 different podcasts, but one of the podcasts in particular, it's uh, a podcast called How Do You Write by Rachel Heron. How do you write? How you doing? And uh, it's pretty cool. There's over a hundred episodes and it's all interviews, interviews with writers. And she just, you know, they're all pretty quick, just has kind of her standard array of questions. And she asks them about their process. What time of day do you prefer writing? What's the best advice anyone ever gave you? And that's where you really do get a sense of this community, this... Again, like, and there's over a hundred of these interviews and everybody is writing these kinds of books. And it's so granular that, keep in mind, this is not a joke. I am not making this up. There is a subgenre of book that is popular enough to pay somebody's mortgage about vampire knitting circles. Vampires who love to knit, who uh, I guess have romantic adventures, you know? Like, it's amazing to me that that is something that I really, I really should try to track down one of these books and read it. Like, I, I presume it's gotta be at least a bit tongue in cheek, right? Like, it's such a weird dichotomy. If, if nothing else, it's proof that vampires are deader than dead, you know? <laughs> I mean, vampires were getting pretty cool in the Anne Rice 80s, going pretty strong through the 90s, all the way up to, like, Twilight, getting a little silly with the fucking sparkly vampires. But at this point, the cool, sexy, dangerous vampire 
has been so declawed that they're coupled with the least cool, dangerous, sexy thing you could ever imagine, which is knitting. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and this is a thing of like, I loved your last knitting vampire circle book. I can't wait for the next one. What the fuck? Like how, I, it's so interesting to learn about these things. I never would have known that's a thing because it's just one of those things you couldn't even, you could never guess that that's a thing. So uh, I listened to a batch of these interviews and yeah, eventually it's just, it was too obvious that even though this was interesting and I liked it, way too clear that this just, none of these people are talking about what's really interesting to me. None of them are really talking about what makes, like even just one of the uh, standard questions that Rachel asks is what, if you weren't a writer, what other career would you have? What other job would you have? And even just that question is so bizarre to me because uh, I, I, I think about it every time and I'm like, I don't know how I would even answer that question because my alternative would be homelessness, <laughs> you know? <laughs> or would just be like, I'll work at a coffee shop and I'll keep writing. Like, what do you even mean with that question? That is just such a strange question to me. But it's because they're approaching writing as their job, as their thing that pays the bills. And it's like, hey, if writing didn't pay the bills anymore, what would you do instead? And like, yeah, like I don't have an answer for that. I wouldn't stop. It's just, it's a totally, like the, the very nature of that question, just, just something wrong with it. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. I'm deep in dream world. I'm not in practicality land and I'm going to stay in dream world until my stupid book takes over the world or I die. That's it. <laughs> so I eventually jumped ship, but by happenstance, uh, one of the, it was actually one of the very first interviews I listened to had a great piece of advice that I really liked. It was the only thing in any of these podcasts that I listened to, the interviews or otherwise, I listened to a bunch of other podcasts too for, you know, a dozen episodes and bailed out because I could not fucking stand them anymore. Anybody who uh, rated this podcast one star on iTunes, I feel you. I mean, obviously you're not here anymore. <laughs> but when somebody doesn't jive with you, especially about something as abstract as writing, it's just so frustrating. It's like, what are you talking about? You need to shut up. So I'm sure there's people who feel that way about me. But I luckily came across this one piece of advice uh, that was really useful. So it was episode 52 of the How Do You Write podcast. It was an interview with a lady named Elizabeth Greenwood. And she said something that immediately I was like, that's awesome. That is helpful as shit. I like that a lot. And I will tell you about it momentarily, but I've stumbled back into uh, society and I gotta get out of here so I can keep talking to myself. All right, far across Tokyo now, <laughs> resuming some hours later. Man, it was weird. So yeah, it was obviously, this happens to me constantly where I, I try to apply a grid to Tokyo because, you know, European cities are almost always a grid. Well, North American cities, because Amsterdam certainly not a grid. So I think like, oh, okay, I was walking kind of in this general direction. If I hang a left and hang another left, I should get back to where I started. And I never do. <laughs> that never works. Not even close. 
And even when there is a grid, I mean, I got lost in New York all the time. And I mean, the streets are numbered. I didn't even have an excuse there. I'm just not, uh, as much as I like just wandering around, I'm not good at navigating. I have really no natural sense for it. I need visual landmarks or I'm done for. Visual landmarks above and beyond fucking numbered streets. <laughs> I guess I'm just done for no matter what. There is no way for me not to get lost. So I finally stumbled onto a subway station. Man, that is one thing though. Tokyo, even on the outskirts of Tokyo, it is the best place to just wander randomly ever. First off, because you're guaranteed to get lost because it's uh, just laid out. I guess it was originally laid out kind of in this weird way so that attackers would have a hard time getting to the center and getting to uh, the emperor, and it sure fucking works. But also, it's no big deal to get lost because there are convenience stores all over the place. They're all 24-hour. You can get free Wi-Fi at the convenience store. And there's uh, washrooms, like tons of washrooms. It's like the flip-flop inverse of... Uh, of the Netherlands. <laughs> Around here, if you just think it, you're like, you know what, I could kind of use a washroom. You'll probably find one just in a park somewhere or just whatever. There's like tons of washrooms. It's awesome. I love it. But yeah, very low stress to get lost and to just walk around. It's fun. But yeah, this train station, I was like, I don't know what fucking train station this is. I picked a direction that I was like, okay, I think I've heard of that before. That sounds right. And uh, a lot of the trains, I think this is in preparation for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. There's uh, quite a bit of English. There's like, you know, a, an English announcer voice that'll tell you like the next stop is doors will open on the right. And it's funny because I look around some packed train and like I'm the only white dude. <laughs> I'm the only English person. And I almost feel a little bad for all these people that... Uh, they don't need the English, they don't want it, but every single announcement needs to be doubled in English just in case I happen to be on the train, <laughs> you know? It's not a, it's not a worthwhile split. It's kind of like in Canada, how everything is written in English and French. But if you're not in Quebec, you don't need the French, and you don't want the French, but there's French everywhere, it's just how it is. Anyway, this particular train line is so far in the middle of nowhere that uh, it did not have this particular language quirk because <laughs> there was no fucking English some of the signs if you went and leaned in real close at least had the station names in English but that was it so uh, I'm just riding this train it was dark out at that point for like ages like 40 minutes you know looking at stations observing them trying to hear announcements about uh, transfers and stuff in Japanese. I could at least pick up, you know, if I hear a major station name or a major train line name, I'd probably catch that. Watching what other people do <laughs> and just going through the black void. And I'm just like, well, I hope I'm going the right way. <laughs> I hope I get to where I'm going. And eventually I did. But yeah, weird, f fun and stressful at the same time, you know? Not stressful, but just like kind of uncomfortable. Just like, what? What's happening? Which, speaking of, I just walked into a dead end. There's something about these little uh, residential neighborhoods, especially when you get to like the back streets. It's weird, like you know in King of the Hill, how they're all just standing at the back of Hank's house? 
you know, they use the back entrance instead of the front entrance. It kind of feels like that, except the streets aren't straight. They're all spidery and curved. And there's a lot of bicycles. It's funny because like that was a big thing with Amsterdam was like there's bicycles everywhere and they'll run you over. Where here there's also, it feels almost like Parisian. There's just these quiet streets, a lot of plants and flowers and bicycles. But yeah, instead of the bicycles being psycho like they are in Amsterdam, here everyone's real nice. Even just, just before I started recording, like, uh, you know, I was like, got to a corner, saw a girl on a bike coming, so I just stopped. And just that I stopped for a moment, you know, to let her go by, she like did the thank you bow. I'm like, man, that's so, I just, I like it. I don't know, I'm sure there's a horrible repression happening under the surface that everyone has been beaten into politeness around here. <laughs> but I do like it. I do like how nice people are. Man, though, I heard a story about an American guy who got arrested here because uh, somebody used his apartment to uh, have drugs sent into the country. So he got arrested for it. Horrifying story. You don't get any phone call. You don't get bail without uh, six months of bullshit. Like six months he was in jail. It was a crazy story. Story for another time. But uh, yeah, reprisal around here is incredibly harsh and brutal. Apparently, you know, as a lot of human rights people have a lot of problems with Japan. But I was thinking, though, on the other hand, how many times do you hear stories about people getting arrested and it's a nice story? <laughs> you know, it's always horrible. What is the statistic now? Like 95% of the American population is in jail <laughs> for minor drug offenses. I think that's right. Okay, so what I was saying is episode 52 of the How Do You Write podcast by Rachel Heron. She interviewed this woman named Elizabeth Greenwood. And one of the uh, questions that she asks during these interviews is, uh, what is your like secret writing tip of awesomeness? Like, What's the thing you could tell somebody that you might not commonly hear, but that is helpful advice? And this one really shocked me because, as I was rambling about earlier, like most writing advice just kind of blows right past me. It's not directly useful or easy for me to apply. And in general, even if it's good advice or bad advice, like I, I pretty much got to go through the process myself before any of this stuff really helps, you know? Like I can think back and be like, oh yeah, I did hear that, or someone did say that, but until I've applied it myself and gone through the experience myself, I don't know, mentorship in something as abstract as writing is of a limited value, <laughs> maybe negative value, you know, a lot of times I think advice can kind of warp someone's writing and like, especially on a first draft, I really think you're probably better off just doing what comes naturally and focusing on what makes you idiosyncratic and what makes your writing unique. And then if there's something real wrong with it that just is structurally making everybody fucking hate it, then maybe you can do something about that after. But when you go into stuff with all of this fucking advice, you really got to question like, where's this advice coming from? What have these people done that you would want to emulate? I don't know, again though, maybe 
I feel that way and other people don't maybe. Cause I have never, there's never somebody that I look at and think like, Oh, I wish I had that life. Oh, I wish I had those achievements. Like I just don't, my brain doesn't work that way. It's like, well, whatever they did, it's not what I'm going to do. I'm not saying it, it's not better or whatever. It's just, it's not the same. It's not going to be what I'm going to make. So I tend to rebel against advice in general. But what this lady said to finally get to the point is she had advice about endings where she said like, when you get your big ending, your big final wrap up where it's like, all right, here's all the themes, here's all the ideas, here's the final thing, gonna wrap it up in a little bow and like, bam, there you go, there's the end. She was saying that what she usually finds is better is if you take that big ending where it's like, here's all my big ideas, look how smart I am, look how fucking awesome I am, and just roll it back like three paragraphs and end it there, it's probably a better ending, you know? Like, leave things a little bit, just a little bit more ambiguous, you know? Like, don't fucking point all the flashing arrows right at your big bad ending. Just pull back a little bit. Just give it a little bit of room for a person to apply their own thoughts about what has just transpired onto this story, you know? Everything doesn't need to be stamped with the giant, this is the ending stamp. And I thought that was pretty cool advice because uh, as I've said many times, I'm big on the ending. I really do not. <laughs> this, is, this is one piece of advice that I steadfastly do think you should uh, apply is don't start writing without an ending in mind. A good ending isn't just gonna accidentally happen. The number of times that has happened is like one in a million, you know? So many stories with just blasé endings. I really do think to just kind of put it in a fucking over-dramatized way, like in some ways a bad ending, it's kind of the cardinal sin of a story because I don't know, it's just like you're mistreating your reader. Because nobody knows that the ending is gonna be bad till they get there. And there's so much goodwill applied to a story because, yeah, like people don't know that it's gonna suck. So they're just like waiting and hoping like, all right, this is no good. These things don't seem like they're gonna work out. I don't know how this is working out. This is, I'm not sure but I trust that it's gonna to come together. I trust that it's gonna have a good ending. And then when you get to the end and the ending is just some malformed piece of shit, like it's just a calamitous drop. You know, it's like all of that hope that you're holding on to, all that goodwill that you're holding on to, of hopefully this is gonna work out, hopefully this is going somewhere. I trust that I'm in good hands. I trust that this author has some idea to impart and has some purpose to what they're writing and has some journey that they're sending me on. There's some reason for this. And then it feels like when you're walking along like the bed of a lake, like near the shore of a lake and you're walking and you're walking and you're walking and the water's up to your chest and then the water's up to your neck, but it's just, you know, very gradually getting deeper. And then the drop off, boom, suddenly it drops 80 feet and you're just, you're dead. You're just dead. <laughs> like that's how I, 
That's how my goodwill feels. It just drops off a cliff. It's just like, you fucking dick. Why did you let me read this whole story if you were just gonna, if you didn't know what we were doing here? So the point I'm trying to make is that I think endings are important. I'm very much of the opinion that, I mean, in some ways the ending is the most important. Well, I mean, you can't say that, obviously. You can't get to an ending without everything else, but it's, it's 50%. That very end of a story is 50%. Everything else is to build up toward the ending and to build a framework to lead a person to that ending, and then the other 50% is the ending. A great ending can save a story big time, whereas a bad ending can just totally destroy it. It can just be like, what was the point of any of that? I don't even care if it was good on the way or if it had stuff that worked on the way because we got to nowhere. The point of a story is the ending. Which, like I said last episode, is a reason why modern day television fucking drives me nuts because there's never an ending anymore. Although there kind of never was. TV's weird, man. Like, at least TV used to have individual episodes of stuff. But man, because I was looking up uh, Quantum Leap. Quantum Leap was a really cool show, or if you never saw it, young whippersnappers. It's this guy who, uh, every episode, he teleported into a random person's body from somewhere in recent history. Had to happen within his lifetime. I think just so they could reuse sets from... uh, other TV shows (laughs) to keep the cost down. But then he had the one episode to uh, figure out what this person's problem was in their life and try to save them, try to help them. And his whole thing was he was always hoping that the next leap would be the leap home, you know, would be the time that he would finally return back to his own life and his time as this weird purgatory angel would finally be over. And it never got to have a proper ending because it's TV, you know? It just TV runs until it's no longer profitable and then it gets canceled. And Quantum Leap had a particularly bizarre ending because it didn't even just evaporate into the ether like most TV shows of the time. They did throw up a quick, like, title card at the very end of just like, let's just wrap this up real quick. And the final thing they wrote on screen was, He never got home. He never leaped back home. And it's like, why would you say that? What? What does that... What? (laughs) And apparently the producers, like, I don't know, the way they explained it was like they didn't intend for it to be so fatalistic and so brutal-seeming. I'm not quite sure how they could misread what they had done, (laughs) but... I don't know, I guess their idea was just kind of like, hey, he just kept helping people, like his adventures never stopped. But the way it came off was like very creepy, like some kind of Twilight Zone shit. Like, what, he never got home? What the fuck? The fuck anything is that? (laughs) But that bizarre ending was just like this quick thing they had to throw together because they thought they were going to get renewed for another season and they didn't. But that made me think of, like, how many TV shows have had an actual ending? And when you look it up, not many, man. <laughs> they just run and run and run until the ratings are bad and they get canceled. It's just weird. 
Anyway, I'm rambling again, and I'm lost. God damn it. I was really trying to kind of at least keep my eye on the train. So I'd at least know where the train track was, and I could, you know, at least get to a train from there. But walking down these back alleys, I'm lost again. I don't know where I am. So anyway, as an example, though, of, uh, since I'm so, I'm so into endings, I'm so, uh, interested in the power of the ending and I think that's why I just thought that advice was so immediately interesting because I want my endings to be as good as possible. I want them to be as strong as possible. And when this writer Elizabeth Greenwood pointed that out that uh, in her experience you get some uh, some unpleasantly florid endings that uh, think they got more to say than they should have to say, right away I was like, oh, well, I bet, you know what? <laughs> She's not wrong, because uh, I kind of feel like that, that could be, that could be me. I mean, listen to all this fucking rambling I do, all this bullshit. I think I'm so smart about all this stupid shit. Who's going to have a fucking annoyingly fucking pretentious ending, if not me? You know, I'm the guy who's going to do that. So as an example, let me use the ending to this novel I'm writing right now, because I think it fits perfectly with this idea. And, you know, hey, whatever, this book won't be out for fucking ever. You probably won't read it for years. And by then you'll long have forgotten everything that I've ever said. So let's just do it. So the basic premise of this story, the basic idea is this war orphan alien who comes from this violent society who gets stranded on this space station because her planet blew up. She's just a total, like, orphan, has nowhere to go and then is just trapped in like this space mall, just this place that is just bland and awful. And at the same time is just, you know, racked with psychological uh, difficulties, pain, horror, weight, with no one to help her through this, this awful situation. And of course, you know, it's sci-fi is all metaphors. It's all metaphors, you know, it's about a, a big angry space rhino but obviously it's really just about powerlessness you know it's about terrorists and school shooters and it's like you know you feel powerless and there's no one to help you you're gonna reach for whatever sense of power you can find man these streets are empty but fucking not empty enough Everywhere I go, there's like somebody, there's like one person. <laughs> like, what the fuck? It's just enough people to fuck me up. I found the train line though. Hear that? Train coming by. For fuck's sake, it is like, man, it's like a video game or something. There's like a person perfectly placed, like every 30 feet. <laughs> it's like, what the hell's going on here? I guess this is why I keep wandering away from the train line, because when you're by the train line, there's always people. Okay, so yeah, this story, it's about this character that is utterly powerless, and throughout the course of the novel, finds ways to gather power. Since it's a sci-fi story, it's of a radical, near-supernatural variety. What's that saying of, like, uh, technology? when it reaches a certain level, is indistinguishable from magic. 
And long story short, she blows the whole fucking place up. She doesn't kill anybody, because uh, I'm not a fan of killing characters unless it's real important. See previous episodes for details. I think the episode was called Killing Characters. But yeah, that's, it's kind of like the, uh, like perpetuating the cycles of abuse or something. It's like this horrible thing happened to her and her society was just brutal to begin with. So to her, the idea of sending everyone away from this space station, like forcing a complete exodus and then blowing it up, it's partially vindictive and partially just an asshole thing to do and just partially because she's a bad fucking person. But also at the same time, it's like, it's like tough love. It's like, look at you sad little people. Look at your soft little society, you little scientists. You're missing out on what my society has to offer, which is brutal adulthood rituals. You know, brutal toughening up. And now it's time for you to experience that through the medium of your home being destroyed. <laughs> and that's the ending. But the actual ending, like the final moment, is that she's not the only one of her species on the station. So she's already sent them a message. She sent them away on a smaller ship. So she watches the space station blow up and then she goes to rendezvous with her people. And the final moment, the original final moment that I had in mind was she would hear like a message come over the, you know, space radio identifying her as a pirate. And that would be the final moment is just you know, how good it feels to be bad. <laughs> of like, yeah, pirate, that sounds right. You want to call me a pirate? Then I am a pirate. You know, it's like calling a, it's like telling a kid that they're bad. And it's like, yeah, you want to say I'm bad? Well, then I'm going to be real bad. Man, I am quite sure that I just walked in a giant fucking circle. I'm in this weird little neighborhood I was in the other day. I'm thinking like how I got here the other day. That's just crazy. How could I, like, how can I get this lost? It's so fucking crazy. It must just be that the train line that I found was not the train line that I thought it was. Man, this place is just the fucking number one place for getting lost of all time. Which is fine. I mean, hey, I'm just fucking walking around talking to myself, but it's, it's pretty goddamn remarkable how lost I keep getting. Ooh, yeah, man, at some point when I was walking, I, I literally went the wrong way, exactly backwards, which, I mean, I, like I said, I got a bad sense of direction in general. I get lost a lot. But this is the second time this has happened to me in Tokyo. I don't think I've ever gone literally the wrong way for, like, a long time, you know, for, like, an hour, except in Tokyo. So anyway, I am by a station that'll eventually get me home. Go to this, do a little transfer, blah, blah, blah. Fuck it, so I'm bailing out. I don't know, man, I thought I had this big point. Big point about endings and like, oh, I'm gonna explain it based on my story and stuff. I don't know, I think this podcast didn't turn out. I think this has sucked. <laughs> Maybe today was just the wrong day. Maybe talking about the ending of a book that's not finished is uh, pointless. Maybe. Maybe that's what I'm realizing all of a sudden. 
But anyway, to wrap up, so originally, yeah, it was gonna be this chick fucking blew up the space station. She's with her uh, remaining people. She hears on the radio that they refer to her as a pirate and she loves it. Yeah, I'm a pirate. You know, like, but sad too. You know, like a tear in the eye for the insane insanity that she just did and like all the repercussions that are gonna happen and what this even says about her. But at the same time, like, yeah, strength. Strength through evil. Strength through doing fucked up shit. You're gonna act like I'm crazy, you're gonna act like I'm the big barbarian. Well, I'll fucking show you what it means to be a big barbarian. So that was my initial idea for the ending. Then I just kind of kept writing other stuff, you know, just other things would come to mind and I'd jot those down. So I've got like a whole folder full of just like the things that could happen for the ending. And I'll just wait till I get there and see what I feel. But they tended to trend more toward like that same ending, but with an extra tag where one of the other people from her species, you know, she's kind of the de facto leader. Not even de facto. I mean, she blew up a space station. She's obviously badass. So they look to her just like, now what? So where are we going? What are we doing? And I just got like a whole variety of cool action hero lines of just like, like, I think we've got a whole universe out there that needs to remember our names it needs to know who we are you know whatever stuff like that i got like 10 different versions of like what's the coolest one what's the cool dry wit of the action hero i don't know but i'll just jot them down as i think of them in the shower and i feel like cool badass like yeah that would be cool and then i guess what i realized when i heard that quote when i heard that advice about rolling it back i'm like well that couldn't be more appropriate because I've got all these fucking dorky ideas that are like, oh, that would be so cool. That are obviously written by my 13-year-old self that aren't cool at all. They're really douchey and the dumb, real douchebag bullshit. Trying to be all tough, trying to be all cool, trying to be all edgy. I'm a fucking 39-year-old man. What the fuck is this shit? <laughs> I should know better than this. So I was thinking, like, what if I just took that exact advice? What if I just roll it back three paragraphs? What if... She watches the space station explode and she just starts flying up toward her people. Rendezvous with her people and just stop right there. That's the end. Because that just leaves so much more ambiguity in a good way of like, like it just, there's so many little details that it leaves of like, what are her people going to think about this? Presumably they'll think it's cool because they're all violent barbarian types. But who knows, you know, how is she going to handle being their leader? How is she going to handle explaining what the fuck just happened? What is going to be the outcome of any of this? And it's kind of, it kind of lessens it to check some of those boxes, to answer some of those questions. Like if I just pull it back a little more... And it's just that moment, just that final moment of like, I just did that. It's like a kid who burned down an empty house or something. It's like, that's crazy that I did that. Now what? You know? And since the story's not going to explain now what, because this is the end, then that is the end. Just leave people with that moment. Leave people with that feeling. Things built and built and built and built until this crazy, horrible thing happened and then stop. 
and it's just way better that way. It's way better. And I'm just like, that's so awesome that I listen to all these podcasts and all these writers give all this advice and it was all just bouncing off me. But when you get the right piece of advice, the right person says the right thing, I should really go find an Elizabeth Greenwood book and read it. Maybe I'll love it because that was such, such a... I can't think of the word. Just such good advice. (laughs) It's just good advice. That is a person who is mindful of the craft, you know? That's a person who knows what they're fucking talking about. And it's like, that's, that's so awesome. And I thought about a bunch of my stories and like, it applies to a lot of them. But what I also thought was interesting is because I do often think of things as a movie. It's just an easy way to visualize stuff. And what I realized is that if it was a movie, I would go the extra step. I don't like when movies stop too early. I don't like when movies end without the full feeling of catharsis. And a great example is The Shawshank Redemption. Probably the best Stephen King story and was my favorite movie for years. It's probably still my favorite movie, but it's neck and neck with Ginger Snaps. (laughs) But Shawshank, famously, if you're a Shawshank fan, The original cut of the movie was the same as the ending of the story, where at the end of the story, it's Red on a bus, he's gonna break parole, he's gonna cross the border into Tijuana to to meet up with Andy. He doesn't know if he's gonna make it, he doesn't know if he'll ever see his friend again, but he just hopes, he just hopes that he will. And in the story, there's nothing wrong with that. That is fine, that is the perfect ending. Whereas when the movie ended that way, You know, a movie is just a more visceral experience in some ways, you know? It's like you've lived through this in a different way, in like this compact way of like you've watched Red and Andy go through all this shit for two and a half hours. You can't end on that artsy, ambiguous note. You just can't. And test audiences freaked out. They're like, you cannot end right there. That's nuts. And I agree. And they added this little extra scene that shows Red and Andy on the beach in Zewataneo and everything worked out. And you need that in a movie. You need it. It's gotta be there. You have to have that ending or you'll lose your mind. And I was thinking that same thing with a lot of my stories of like, this story I think is really cool to end sort of like the Shawshank ending, except, you know, that it's a, like a negative ending, but the, that little ambiguous moment What's going to happen next? Who can say for sure? But that's not necessarily the point. The moment is the point. So that's enough. But if it was a movie, I would not end there. That would drive people fucking bananas. You watched a whole movie and you're just going to end with uh, her flying toward her people and the credits hit? No, no, nah. In a movie, she's got to fly up there and she's going to give the action movie line. She's going to say it's time for the fucking South to rise again, then credits, you know? Or I've got this other story I'm working on where uh, I should explain it in greater detail sometime because it's uh, it's a great example of like where ideas come from or whatever. But uh, basically it's this, I might have talked about it before a little bit, it's this girl who gets access to magic, sort of similar, a similar concept I guess, except it's current day and it is actual magic. But the idea is, I always thought that, uh, I must have said this before, but I always thought that that... Uh, you know, are you going to choose good or are you going to choose evil? I always thought that was the most boring thing in the world. It's why, like, Disney heroes are so boring. Because the choice between good and evil is a very easy choice. 
You choose good. Of course you choose good. There's all kinds of benefits to choosing good. They easily outweigh the benefits of choosing evil. It's just true. It's just how it is. Unless you are legitimately just a fucked up person with a broken brain, you don't choose evil. Nobody does. It's a boring fucking debate to have. It's a boring story to tell. But what if your options were evil or nothing, you know? You can have some magic and you can do all this cool, crazy shit to change the world and change your life, but they're not good things. They're all bad things. They're like mind control and ways you can hurt other people, not ways you can help. Now, do you take those abilities or do you just continue to live your boring, normal life? To me, that's a much harder choice because that's, that's when being the good person is a hard choice to make. And this particular character is just too weak to say no to the power. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and more and more out of control. And it ends with her dying. She, she basically mind controls her friend. And it ends with her dying. It ends with her just getting stabbed. Because <laughs> it's like there's no other way out of this. It's gotten so bad and so crazy and is to builds to a you know, Stay puff Marshmallow Man, crazy Gozer Ghostbusters ending, and it's like the world is gonna get fucked up if this doesn't stop right now, and it's way too late, and things have gone way too far, and the only way this can end is sacrifice, self-sacrifice, suicide, death. And actually, I wrote the end of that story already where it's gonna be... I don't usually get too in, involved in... Like, oh, what a great way to describe something. What a great way to write something. But in this particular case, I really liked it where... Because I think a lot about sleep. I've always had sleep problems throughout my life. And if you're an insomniac, I think you go through things other people never do. Like, I know people that are just... They're tired and they just sleep and that's it. That's just how their bodies work. Where, to me, it's always a struggle to sleep to the point that I can feel myself falling asleep to an absurd degree. I can be like aware of the fact that I'm like, oh, I almost fell asleep there. I could feel it. I could feel the whole thing. And it's just, it's a horrible nightmare. It's bizarre. But you never are aware of that moment. No matter how much of a weird insomniac you are, you're obviously never aware of the moment when you fall asleep. You know, that's nothing, that's never a moment you can experience. That always just happens. And you're not aware of it until you wake up. So basically, I described this girl's death the same way. She's been stabbed. It's the most incredibly painful thing in the world, but she's happy at the same time that this is at least a way out, that the world's not going to get destroyed on her watch. You know, she didn't have the strength to stop things from getting to this point, but she does have the strength to end it right now. And then in the same way that you're not aware of that moment when you fall asleep, she's not aware of the moment when it all stops. And that's it, the end. That's the end of the story. But I was thinking about that too, that if this was a movie, it's not enough, <laughs> you know? She's gotta die and then we've gotta hang on the remaining characters show the people that are left, slow pan out, take that extra moment before the story's over. So I don't know, I guess there's two, two sort of separate points. 
the more important one being that uh, I really think that's an interesting exercise to try. Take whatever ending you got in mind and roll it back just a little bit and see if it's better that way. See if you're like me and you wrote a bunch of douchebag stuff that the story would be a lot better off without. If it would just feel cleaner and feel like a more like an ending people could really sink their teeth into more, or an ending that gives a person more to ponder if a couple of those final questions aren't answered and you just roll it back a little bit. That's the real, that's the real point of this episode. And then additionally, if somehow you're also a, a movie maker and you make movies of your novels, which who the fuck, who do I think I'm talking to now, except myself in some glorious, magical future, in a movie, you probably do need that extra beat, that extra moment, that extra little wrap-up. Because when you leave a movie on a, a deeply... Like, what doesn't feel annoyingly ambiguous in a novel does feel annoyingly ambiguous in a movie. The only time I can think of a movie-like experience that pulled it off, it's that game The Last of Us. The Last of Us ended before a movie would have ended. <laughs> a movie would have had that final shot and The Last of Us didn't and it was brave as hell. It was some bold shit and that, that they pulled it off is a goddamn miracle. But in general, in general, what am I talking about? Who listens to this podcast? What is this? Jesus Christ. I don't know, hopefully, I'm hoping. A lot of times when I'm like, holy fuck, that was a bad podcast. What were you talking about? Did that make any sense? Is that is, is your brain this poorly structured? You really can't give a little talk in a more coherent manner than this? But then usually I listen back and it's not as bad as I think it was. So I hope this isn't as bad as it seems like it was. I don't know. I had fun. I had fun walking around, getting lost. Even now, this last little bit, I'm just sitting on a street corner, just watching people go by, and it's, uh, it's fucking cool. What is this station called? I really like this neighborhood. It is... Otsuka Station. Classic. Classic Otsuka Station podcast. All right, thanks again for listening. I can't believe I didn't think of a song after all that shit. And I stopped at a uh, drink machine earlier to get a bottle of water to try to combat my clicky mouth. And it turns out it's like some kind of gross ass. It's like Pocari sweat, but it's not. It's called Aquarius. But man, I could have swore this was water. <laughs> Fucking Japan. That is one downside to this place is uh, everything is so sweet, so sugary. I don't know how everyone's so skinny. It's crazy. You know, I was really going through kind of a kick for a little while in North America where I was really trying to cut down on sugar. And it's really hard to do, but at least in North America, you know, there's like the sort of health food movement. It's not impossible. <laughs> Around here, it is impossible. Fucking forget it. Sugar everywhere. Did I ever play Burning Brain by KMFDM on this podcast? I don't know if I did, but uh, it's from... Man, KMFDM is just, they're the best. I've been listening to them for like 20 years. And there's always at least one song on every album that is super fucking awesome. So this is the one from their most recent album, Burning Brain. 
seems appropriate because I feel like my brain is something is not connecting today. I don't know why I decided today would be the big day to do a podcast because I don't know what the fuck is happening. My stupid head. So here's Burning Brain, KMFDM. Thank you again for listening. Thanks so much for uh, putting up with this fucking nonsense. And I'll talk to you later. Hey, yo there, quick postscript for anyone who uh, hung around for the whole song. I just wanted to mention this just for posterity. I don't totally know what it means, but I think it's worth bringing up. Is I looked up Elizabeth Greenwood, who gave that advice about endings that I liked so much. And I think maybe it's not a coincidence that she stood out so much to me uh, from this interview series. Is She's not a fiction writer. She has written a non-fiction book, I think just this one book, but it's called Playing Dead and it's about death fraud throughout history. Stories of people, you know, faking their own deaths and stuff, which sounds pretty cool. And I think that's interesting that, I guess when she was talking about endings, I mean, I applied it to fiction, but she was uh, clearly not talking about fiction. She was talking about nonfiction. And uh, I mean, maybe there's something to this, you know? Like, how I was saying how I kind of respect these people that just grind out live the life of the grind, you know, like writing fiction books at a rapid pace to pay their bills or whatever, like it seems a little more down to earth and a little closer to reality than uh, my pie in the sky notions of writing a a classic book. But I'd say that a person who writes nonfiction is much more down to earth than that, (laughs) you know, way more in the trenches facing actual reality. And, uh, Maybe that's not coincidence. I mean, that's something I think I'm going to pay attention to in the future. Like, maybe to get advice about writing, maybe you shouldn't go to writers, you know? Maybe fiction writers don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Like, maybe look toward nonfiction writers, because this could just be a coincidence. It could just be this one time, but I feel like it's probably not. I feel like this is, it could be, I think this is a neat idea, like applying the ideas of nonfiction writers to fiction, because they just, they don't fuck around. They have structure, they have a point, they have a purpose, they have a goal. 
and maybe they just uh, have a clearer idea of uh, the nuts and bolts of how things should work. Maybe not, but I think it's worth keeping in mind. Anyway, Playing Dead, Elizabeth Greenwood. Seems cool. Okay, so there's my little postscript. The person who had the most interesting advice is not writing books about vampire knitting circles and uh, all the respect to those esteemed folk, but uh, perhaps that is not coincidence. Okay, (laughs) all right, see you next time.